he wasn't ready. He was caught off guard. He had no idea. He was expecting so much more and seeing him robbed of that life, it just propelled me into another atmosphere where I was like, I have to stop this. This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. Back in May of 2020, epidemiologists warned that Arizona was in danger of seeing a spike in COVID cases if it reopened too quickly. The state's governor, Doug Ducey, reopened the state anyway. Uh, Arizona is is headed in in the right direction. Uh, We have a downward trajectory of influenza and COVID-like illnesses in our state. When 65-year-old Phoenix resident Mark Okiza heard this, he went out to a karaoke bar with his friends. He'd voted for Trump and trusted that COVID was in the nation's rearview mirror. He became infected with COVID and died a few weeks later, alone in a hospital bed on June 30th. On this episode, Mark's daughter, 39-year-old Kristen Okiza, talked with Erin and Elizabeth about her late father and why she blames the president and Governor Ducey for his death and the more than 210,000 COVID deaths that have occurred this year. Kristen has channeled her rage and grief into a nonprofit called Marked by COVID that aims to remember those who have lost their lives during the deadliest and most denied public health crisis in American history. This conversation was recorded in September, shortly after Kristen spoke at the Democratic National Convention. It's hard to have lost a loved one. It's also hard to be in the position that I'm in right now, talking to people just like me who have lost loved ones and the fact that that loss at the very basic level is not being recognized. It's indescribable to know just how much my dad's life didn't matter at all to the president. And that's just a lot to swallow. It's now the 19th anniversary since 9-11. All television every single year is preempted I don't know if this happens in other states, but New Yorkers lost less than 3,000 people and they say their names. They say every single name. And I, I was shocked almost that they did it during the pandemic when we're nearing 200,000 and it's been six months. Yeah, I'm grateful for you raising that. I've watched the ceremony before and I couldn't watch it this year. It was too much because we are losing the equivalent of a 9-11 every three days and have had not even a whisper of the type of response needed to deal with the crisis, let alone the recognition of the colossal loss of life. The projections that I've been seeing is that we could lose as many as 250,000 more people by the end of the year. To put that in context even further, I've been inspired in my own activism, the AIDS activism. So similar public health crisis for a quote unquote marginalized community. So gay people and a similar lack of government response. And there have been 750,000 people who have died from AIDS in the United States over the course of the last 40 years. 750,000 people in 40 years, and we're on pace for half a million in nine months. And I think that part of the reason why I have been so outspoken is because my dad's life mattered. Everyone who has died, their lives 
mattered. The New York Times had that really powerful front page cover with 100,000 names and just a little bit of information. This person was its age. They lived in this town and they loved jazz music or yeah. they loved their grandkids. But yesterday we hit 200K and what was the front page of the New York Times? It wasn't another 100,000 yeah. obituaries. There was nothing on the front page of the New York Times about the fact that we had lost all of these people and who they were. We have not done even a whisper of what we need to do to recognize the loss, to create opportunities for collective grieving and mourning. We need to have a, a national COVID Memorial Day. There needs to be curriculum developed that were taught mm -hmm. about COVID and not the Columbus sell the ocean blue version, <laughs> the like real history so that we don't make this mistake again. And so that those people who paid the ultimate price, that they are memorialized. And the first step is helping people share their story in their local newspaper with an mm -hmm. obituary. When the Bay Area started to shut down, did you call your parents and say, this is really bad? Yes, we were the first area to shut down. You were, yeah, before New York. I think we were a few days later or a yes. week later or something. And during that whole mid-early March period, I was on the phone with my boomer parents every day saying, listen, I'm not sure I know exactly what this is, but it's a big deal. Like we need to figure out how to keep you safe. My parents were listening to me. I think that in March, there was just so much we didn't know. And even though the Trump administration was downplaying the virus then, and we now know that they knew a lot more than they told us about, it was still evolving. And I think my parents could tell that. And as a result, the things that I was telling them, they were doing. They stopped going to the grocery store. They were wearing masks. My dad was an essential worker, only going to his manufacturing job and back. That being said, I knew that I needed to be on the phone with them daily to mitigate their risk and help them navigate these boundaries because I know that Arizona is a totally different place than San Francisco. And I just don't, I didn't trust these people to begin with. You grew up in Maryvale, right? Your family lives mm -hmm. in Maryvale. But for people listening as a suburb that has a huge Latino population, what we saw play out there is similar to what we saw around the country, right? As far yeah. as certain communities in Phoenix, depending on their you know, socioeconomic and racial makeup, had more access to testing than other areas. Was that the case in Maryvale? And, and what's happening now? My community of Maryvale, 70% Latino, mostly immigrant folks who live around the federal poverty line. So it's a humble community, mostly folks that work in grocery stores and fast food restaurants. The weekend that my dad got sick on June 11th, uh, which was a Thursday, and that weekend, the 13th, there were lines 13 hours long in Maryvale for people to get tested. Now, mind you, this was not in March when we didn't know this thing was happening. This was in June. The state of Arizona had been shut down saying that it was preparing for the case surge, and it was not prepared at all, at least not in the predominantly Latino and the predominantly Black South Mountain area of Phoenix. 
Now, on the other hand, those types of lines weren't around in Scottsdale, Fashion Square, the more affluent suburbs or parts of town. That, in addition to losing my dad, was like, I can't not say anything because who else from Maryville has the experience and skills that I have because I've done environmental organizing and campaigning before to lend that to this issue and really fight for my community. And Scottsdale and other wealthier areas of Phoenix, were they having local drugstores doing testing or was it easier to get access? It's funny you ask this because after my dad got sick, I then started to worry about my mother, of course, and wanted to get her a rapid test because I was trying to come back home to be able to be closer to home in case anything happened. And we couldn't get a test from my mom until I found a clinic in Scottsdale where I could pay a fee to get her a rapid test. And so I went ahead and went forward with that. But while I was coming up with this huge list and thinking to myself, who has the time and resources? I was lucky that my job understood what was going on and said, take the time that you need and we'll figure it out. So I could spend the time on the phone helping my mom find a test. Like I have money in my checking account in order to send a check to my mom so that she could get that test. Like in what universe is this okay for our healthcare system in which you need to have privilege in order to have basic care during a pandemic that's literally killing people? It makes no sense whatsoever. And that's because the system isn't, doesn't work for regular people. And that's a problem. How much did the test cost? It was $50. Totally random. Um, Speaking of other things that don't make any sense in Arizona, Doug Ducey, who's the current governor, I know that he's the former CEO of Cold Stone Creamery. I don't know what else he has under his belt that makes him capable of doing the job of governor, but he stopped the spread modeling research that was going on at the University of Arizona in Tucson and Arizona State University. He not only opens the state, In early May, he reopens it after shutting everything down. He had the best epidemiologist in the world working for these schools, helping to do this modeling. He told them to stop. And later that week, he reopened the state. So I don't know how he can say that was a good idea because he had all of the facts in front of him. The thing that I find really interesting about the timeline and the facts are that the very first trip that the president took after his own quarantine in May, was to Arizona. It was on that trip where he was on a publicity spree to say we needed to reopen. We were on the other side of the pandemic. The American people were ready to reopen. And while I'm not privy to those conversations, I don't have a doubt in my mind that part of that visit was firming up his buddy Doug to say, listen, we got to get Arizona cranking or else I'm going to look bad. And if I look bad, I'm going to come for you. And I can't imagine it more than an old boys club in which Ducey is eyeing for a higher position as a secretary of something in a Trump 2.0 administration. The man doesn't care about Arizonans at all. He went so far as to prevent local municipalities from passing their own safety measures with his reopening strategy 
such as mandating simple mask wearing, which I know the mayors of Tucson, Phoenix, and Flagstaff were banging down the door of the governor's mansion, begging for the authority to do that. Your dad's Mexican-American. Yeah, my dad was born in Arizona. But he's voted for Trump. Yeah, awkward, right? I know a lot of usually older from that boomer generation, but otherwise smart educated people and they're not even necessarily white but they vote for trump first off my dad when he and my mom got married my mom was a registered republican and he was a registered democrat and one of their first conversations and setting up their life together was around their politics and they discovered this about one another which like goes to show you like how different maybe most people i don't know that's something i lead with (laughs) So that wouldn't even be a question in my relationship. But anyhow, for them, it was something they discovered later after they had gotten married. And so my dad, who is a super kind of go along with the flow kind of guy, was like, oh, I'll just register as a Republican so that way we don't cancel each other out. And there was something very sweet about that to me whenever my mom told me that story not too long ago. But I do think over time, he saw himself getting more aligned with a party. And a recent conversation I had with my dad's cousin, Leticia, created this window into pieces of my dad that I hadn't really appreciated before. And they specifically have to do with how difficult it was for him growing up first generation in the 1960s and having a dad who was from Mexico who required them to work in the fields. Like my dad's first language was Spanish. So when he went to elementary school, he got made fun of. And as my cousin was telling me some of these stories and some of the tension between my dad and his father, my dad being the oldest, I think his gradual pull to the Republican Party was actually a form of assimilation in wanting to belong and not wanting to be made fun of for the color of his skin or, you know, the accent that he had when he was in kindergarten. And while it's something I don't know for sure, I have started to ruminate a little bit on that. And it has helped me see just a little bit more from his perspective, some of the desire towards this idea of what the country is and how to be safe in it. I haven't heard that before. And it makes a lot of sense wanting to put your trust in this businessman who made himself a billionaire. It's like a simple thing, but it really works for a lot of people and they just want to trust in his humanity. We don't need the president to be a great person or something. Did you guys ever talk about politics? My dad and I talked politics a lot. We hardly ever agreed on anything. And when it came to Trump, for sure, we never saw eye to eye on the topic. And you're right. He was bamboozled by the president's business, quote unquote, acumen. And that's what my dad liked about uh, Trump was that he would bring this fresh perspective to the office. Our conversations, especially as I got older and got a little bit more comfortable in my own skin, we talked less about politics just because I knew we wouldn't necessarily agree on issues and it wasn't 
you know, something I wanted to get upset about. But my dad and I, we bonded over other things. For example, I have an old pickup truck, a 97 Nissan that my dad gifted to me. That was his. (laughs) And so we would work on the truck together. There's lots of zip ties and other creative solutions for keeping pieces of it together. (laughs) And growing up as a kid, my dad was really active in sports and was the convener of bringing people together. So a lot of my memories of my dad, even though as an only child, are less about the two of us alone, but us surrounded by friends, family, and community. Like my dad, if he was in a room, you knew he was there. He had a huge smile, a booming voice, and he really just brought such a positive energy to the spaces that he was in. And I know that's something that so many people in his passing have mentioned to me that they have missed, they will miss and will continue to miss. It's just his presence. Did he stay with your mom? Were they married a long time? Yeah, they were together for 48 years. Uh, They had at one point gotten divorced, but were living back together again. And so I think that My mom has just really, she's never been alone for this long before. She told me that the longest that she had ever been by herself was a week. Can you imagine? Literally, no. That is incredible. How is she doing right now? She's managing. I think part of what's really difficult for her in all of this is not only losing a partner and being alone, but having it happen in this context. And it's a lot for her to wrestle with. There are many days when I call her and she misses my dad, but also can't understand how this happened, how the cases are still skyrocketing, how people still don't understand that this is real. And that's a lot for someone who's lost someone close to them to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's traumatic. Did your dad have any pre-existing conditions? (laughs) I'm well known for saying that his only pre-existing condition was trusting the president. And honestly, he had just gotten a clean bill of health from his doctor, I think it it was like a couple of months before he got sick, he had to go in for his annual physical and he texted me and his brothers and sisters saying healthy, totally healthy. And I remember that in the context of the pandemic very clearly because both my dad and I were worried about my mom. She's Mm -hmm. diabetic, has a couple of other like high blood pressure and other things going on. And even though he was 65. And I know in that higher at risk area, I was so grateful to get that text message update because I was like, okay, nothing's going on with dad. So obviously we have to worry about him, but we have to worry more about mom. My mom, she did contract the virus, but she ended up being fine. She did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Were they watching the news? Some people right away got very distrustful of Fauci or scientists. My parents did watch. I remember in March, they were watching the news. I I remember in particular this conversation where there was reporting going on about the refrigeration trucks that were going into New York to help take some of the pressure off of the mortuaries for just the massive amount of bodies. And that 
shocked them both. And they didn't question the science. That being said, that doesn't necessarily mean everybody around them also was on the same team. I remember my mom very early on being like, this is way over my head, but I know it's serious. And they were both caught off guard by everything that happened. So he started feeling sick. Can you describe his symptoms and when you got that call? Yeah, he woke up on June 11th with a fever and he also had some other symptoms. He had a cough, extreme exhaustion, and my mom called me right away and told me what was going on. And without missing a beat, I responded back to her that we need to take this seriously. It sounds like COVID. We need to get him tested and to find him a test for the next day. And honestly, he got the test the next day. It wasn't a rapid test, but we never got those test results back because his condition declined and we needed to take him to the emergency room. And he ended up passing away on the 30th of June, which was 19 days from the time he woke up with the fever. I've heard so many family members say, I dropped my family member off at the ER and then never saw them again. Was it like that for you? Yeah, that's what it was like for my mom. She took him in on Tuesday and he wasn't feeling well, but he walked himself into the ER and that was it. He never left. And for me, I just this last spring graduated from grad school. And of course, the graduation got canceled. But that was supposed to be the last time I saw my dad. And a week before he got sick, we were talking about, you know, if things are safe, maybe in the fall, we can do a trip and meet up or do something. And, you know, I never got the chance to say goodbye in any sort of real, meaningful way. And yeah, my mom and I have talked about that trip to the emergency room and how she had no idea, no way of knowing that was dropping him off for him to eventually pass away. It's so surreal to imagine these scenes that doctors and nurses describe of FaceTiming with your Mm -hmm. loved one. Were you Mm -hmm. able to do that at any point? Once he went into the ICU, we did do a couple of FaceTimes and it is surreal. It's a one-way conversation. They have a tablet or some sort of device propped up. The person you're talking to is in a medically induced coma. The doctors say that they can hear to you know some extent. And I was told that when I would come on, my dad would either try and move his hand or squirm his lips. So it seemed like he knew I was there. My dad and I connected a lot over music too in the FaceTime conversations that I had with him while he was in the ICU. A lot of it was just me playing some of his favorite songs for him to help bring some of that to his room. But yeah, my dad was definitely a guy who liked to celebrate life. He was a life of the party. He had lots of gusto. He couldn't carry a tune, but that did not slow him down. There's so many memories associated with music and to such an emotional medium too. What were some of the songs that you played for him? He was a huge Santana fan, so (laughs) we had a big lineup of Santana songs. He also liked the Doobie Brothers, and then, of course, his favorite karaoke song, which was A Hard Day's Night. But 
it was weird. And also, I think it drove home the point further, not just how serious the situation was, but how alone my dad was and how scary that environment is with all of the different tubes and beeping and noises and I can imagine smells and not being able to have your team there beside you, cheering you on. My dad was the oldest of six brothers and sisters. I have a million cousins. We all, except for me, live in Phoenix. If this were a different circumstance, people would have been at his hospital room holding vigil 24-7. And he never had that team there. Nobody gets that team. And that's an important part of the healing and fighting process. I imagine it's a fateful call to get Mm. from the hospital. Can you just walk us through what they say? Yeah. It started earlier in the day when we talked. So my dad passed at 8.30 at night. And early that morning, we got a call because uh, his condition was declining and they needed permission to put in an emergency pick line, which is basically a just a a line through your body to help get medicine more quickly into your system. And what was so hard about that was that the day before we had the first conversation with his doctor, where he started to give us a roadmap of what seems like he's holding steady. You should expect him to be in the ICU for a couple of months. He's going to have lifelong health impacts. So we don't know you know, what exactly yet, it's too early to tell, but he's in a really good condition uh, for being in critical condition. And then he just took a turn for the worse overnight and started to deteriorate. And that morning, his condition had stabilized, but the doctor called to confirm that they were downgrading him from critical to severe. He also said, I have seen people come back from this point, and as long as your dad's heart continues to fight, we will continue to fight alongside of him. But like the nicest thing that the doctor could have said, because especially at that time in Arizona, they had just declared a crisis care situation, basically meaning that our doctors were overloaded, and if needed, they could make decisions about who to give care to or not. And the doctor also said, if his heart gives out, there's nothing we can do for him, but we're going to keep fighting. And I always believed that my dad would make it, that he would pull back from that position. It wasn't until a few hours later that the hospital called my mom and said that his blood pressure is giving out, his heart's giving out, he's actively dying, that I that I started to lose that hope and started to accept that my dad was going to die and I wasn't going to be there with him. When you talked to the DNC, I was really moved by what you said about not being able to hold his hand. Moved isn't the right word. I was angry and it's very sad for you because I'm not supposed to be crying as the co-host, but <laughs> holding my dad's hand, even though he wasn't really conscious when he died, a lot of people get to do that. And the fact that you didn't is so infuriating. And 
I like that the word is it fury or rage is in his obituary, which you say will fuel you to do the work that you're doing now. Rage, I think. Before you joined, Erin said, I really like her rage. <laughs> I feel so seen. It's yeah. true. Because that's how you get things done. I know it's only been a few months since he's yeah. been gone. And there's just this overwhelming sense that you have to do right by this life. And you have this voice, you've inserted yourself into the national conversation, and you won't be silent. And I think that is speaking for hundreds of 1000s of people right now. What gives you the strength to keep going? The core value of mine has always been justice, fighting for just let's just get it right people and be fair and equitable to one another. And in having this tragedy just collapse on my home and in my heart and happen to my dad, I saw so clearly in that moment of grief and fury and rage that it wasn't just happening to me. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a one in a million, that this was something that people like me were going through across the country. And to your point, Elizabeth, I didn't get to be with him when he passed. And it haunts me to this day. A COVID death is an undignified death. Nobody deserves to be alone in their final moments without their loved ones next to them. And seeing the numbers skyrocket, seeing my dear dad go through this and be so scared and have such a desire to continue to live, he wasn't ready. He was caught off guard. He had no idea. He was expecting so much more. And seeing him robbed of that life, it just propelled me into another atmosphere where I was like, I have to stop this. And maybe I'm just loopy enough to think that I can. <laughs> you still see on a daily basis people that are just like, I'm done with this. So I'm not going to wear a mask in public anymore. And I'm just going to go about my life, which is usually tied around entertaining oneself. It's true. I miss going to restaurants. I miss that. And I think part of what's making it so hard for people to be in our best behavior. It goes back to that meme that has been passed around. It's like, we're all in a group project together. And like, you're the only person who's like doing the work. <laughs> like we should not have been in quarantine this long. Had we just done the right thing in the beginning, like we would be in a totally different si situation. And it's the pandemic fatigue is real. At what point did you go on social media? There was that moving post where you're also like, it's going to be $20,000 and we need help. Yeah. You know, when my dad first got sick, I sent out a message to some of my close friends saying, this is what's happening to my family. And I don't know what I need, but I know I can't do this on my own. <laughs> so I'm just alerting you all yeah. <laughs> that I can't do this on my own. And my community really did rally behind me and supported me the entire time. Everything that I wanted to do or needed, they were there. And I, I just mentioned that because I might be the face of this, but it's definitely been a village supporting. And that night, we had actually started driving home because I wanted to, to be closer in case anything happened. So I, I took the phone call at a gas station. Like, how? Ugh. 
on the five freeway in California, which is just like this terribly lonely, desolate road surrounded by cattle fields and smells like cow shit. And as we continued to drive after I got the call that he had passed, I was feeling the the waves of grief. And in between the waves of grief was waves of rage. And it was just the cycle of crying and mourning. And then it would turn to this should not have happened. And not just happened to him, but we should not be in this crisis the way that we're in this crisis. Nobody should be feeling what I'm feeling. Nobody should have to die alone. My dad did not deserve this. People do not deserve this. How do I stop this from happening? And it was over the course of that drive with my partner, Christine, that I I just knew. It was like, I need to figure out something bigger to do because the lives of now 200,000 people matter and we're not getting the response that we deserve. And I can't sit idly by. I just can't be complacent. I can't be complicit. I just, I'm not going to shut up. So pretty much right away, you were laying the groundwork to Mm -hmm. be an activist for change and getting the story out. Did you call the media? Did the media call you? We invited the governor of Arizona to my dad's funeral. Did he attend? No, he didn't attend. He never even responded, which, you know, I'm not totally surprised, but I don't know how many people are inviting him to funerals. I also invited a reporter and afterwards held a vigil outside the state capitol where we invited the media to come and I gave some remarks. And the other piece that got a lot of attention was the obituary that I wrote where I called out politicians for failing. And I think the combination of those things elevated my story that the next day I woke up and my phone was overfilling with voicemails from various outlets that wanted to talk to me. I I expected to like get a new story in the Arizona Republic newspaper. I wasn't expecting to land where I did land. I remember joking, being like, am I going to be like the Aaron Brockovich for COVID? (laughs) Okay, this is weird, but somebody's got to do it. So let's go. And I didn't really put much thought into it. It's rare that I read my news stories. It's rare that I watch myself. I just, I am trying so hard to bring attention to the issue that You know, it's about the issue. It's about the lives lost. It's about needing a data-driven response. And it's about saving lives. And that's what it's been about since day one. Not allowing for people to have to feel what I had to feel and what I have been feeling. So I, I think the DNC noticed me because of the media attention that I had gotten. So they sent a, a message through Twitter, somebody who worked for the DNC asking if I wanted to connect, introducing um, themselves. And I said, sure, let me Google your name and saw that he was a real person who had connections to the vice president and the DNC. So I was like, okay, I'll take the call and see what this is about. And we had a couple of conversations about who I am and the work that I was doing. So I was just kind of in the process of launching Marked by COVID and working with other families. And they extended the opportunity to be a a participant in it. So I knew it was a big deal, but I didn't think much about it. I just was really focused on 
getting my story out is an opportunity to help other people. Can you tell us a little bit about Marked by COVID? Yeah, it's a nonprofit that I launched the day of my dad's funeral. And it's uh, working to uplift the stories of people who've been impacted by COVID or marked. My dad's name was Mark, so it's a little bit of a nod to him as well. And it's not just about people who've lost a loved one. It's about highlighting the other ways in which this pandemic is impacting our communities from teachers who are afraid to go back to school because there's no plan for their safety or the safety of their students to other essential and frontline workers who don't have paid sick leave who have to go to either work sick or risk not being able to pay their rent. And then, of course, it's about people who are survivors of COVID or have lost a loved one to COVID. But through Mark by COVID, I'm helping to raise money to sponsor obituaries for more people to call out politicians and their failure. I'm also helping coach folks in writing letters to their elected officials and helping get the word out in their communities about the misinformation that is going around. So it's definitely a labor of love, but it's a growing movement of people who are fed up with the lies of this administration and are calling for a coordinated data-driven response to this pandemic. I am curious about the concept of honest obituaries. It's become this way for people to tell the truth. The idea really sprung up from one of the first responses on social media to my dad's obituary that basically said something to the extent of, had I had the money to place an obituary for my dad who passed away, I would have written something just like this. And it it made such an impression on me. I had never thought about how Obituaries are also typically tools of exclusion. They're expensive. And whenever you're dealing with a COVID death, which is sudden, uh, unexpected, and you're trying to figure out how to pay for an emergency funeral, it's an easy line item to cut. And thinking about who's being impacted by this, Indigenous people, Black folks, Latin American folks disproportionately, I wanted to make sure that there could be attention to telling those stories in particular. And far too often, policy and leadership failure is hidden in private grief. And wanting to pass through that passage of both helping to uplift untold stories, but also to really just spin the obituary on its head to be like, listen, we don't say people die because they bled out. We don't say people died because their liver failed. No, we say people died from cancer. We say people died from homicide. We say people die from COVID. But people here dying from COVID are dying because the president lied to the country. And I think it's important that people have the opportunity to stand in that truth, to honor their loved ones, and really help to recognize the colossal failure of this president and this administration. How are you helping people write obituaries? Are there actually writer editor types helping? It's me and my partner. And we have a few volunteers who are supporting too. But the obituaries are are mostly written by the people who are the surviving family members. And then we help down so they're less expensive because obituaries 
are so expensive. So getting it really tight and then counseling people on effective language for calling out failed policy. The whole organization right now is volunteer run. I've taken a leave of absence from my job, meaning like I'm not getting paid to do this work. And I think it's an example of how this country tends to work, that the people most impacted have to take incredible risk in order to make change happen. Is marked by COVID for everyone or just? Oh, it's everyone. Yeah, we've been connecting with folks all across the country. We've been working with families in Texas and Florida, Iowa, Louisiana, Georgia. It's been incredible to just talk to people who have been impacted by this virus and see so many similarities in my own story, which going back to the question around like purpose, like that also continues to fuel my purpose. The president can try and gaslight me all day and all night, but I have met, I have spoken to, and I have had front row seats to this disaster. And this is real. This is happening. And I'm going to keep going. Just one song. Thanks for listening. For more information on Marked by COVID, visit markedbycovid.com. Tell Me About Your Father was created by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at TMAYF Podcast and on Instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather. Call our hotline at 888-318-DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888-318-DADS. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donoher. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum. 